So I came in this morning and found gremlins in that computer as it's not wanting to work well. The program's not working well with my, with my iPad, but Bruce has done a valiant job, so appreciate it. He's actually going to be doing the... the I'm sure you'll have a few words for John after he gets back to what did you leave me with? All right, so we are looking at Romans 15, 14, it's actually, I think, 18 through 21. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. The word of God, let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for these passages in Romans. We thank you for the insight of your Holy Spirit, and we pray that he would speak to our hearts and minds. Lord, I pray that you give me words to speak. I pray, Lord, that we're able to see what Paul did as a missionary, perhaps what that we should be doing as a church, supporting a local outreach as well as a global mission, Lord. And I pray that you give us insight and wisdom as we move through these passages. And that through it all, Lord, you're glorified in Christ's name. Amen. So we have seen Paul go through this 15th chapter of Romans, and back one, Bruce, if you don't care, and we have seen exactly where he's wanting to take us. And his aim was to help the Romans to understand what a church was to look like and what they were supposed to do as a church. And we saw that last week, is it not going backwards? It's okay. And we saw that last week that it was Paul's desire to, after everything that he had done, to boast in Christ. And that was his goal, to boast, to make much of Jesus. And that was probably his highest honor as a Christian. It should be our highest honor as well. To make much of Jesus as opposed to making much of ourselves. Regardless of how successful his ministry was, and we all know that it was extraordinary in every way, he always made sure that God was glorified and not himself. He was the apostle who took the gospel to the Gentiles. Without Paul, where would we be? Being Gentiles. And yet, through all of that, he knew and understood that God was using him as a vessel. That he was like a brush to an artist. That he was like a violin to a musician. That he was responsible for none of the good that happened through him, but it was only Christ that was doing it in and through him. And when we realize and understand that God uses us like that, then we can fully give him the glory that is due him. 
But you see, Satan has a unique way of thinking that we're responsible for what we're doing, for any good that's coming from any ministry that we may participate in. I want to go back over verse 18 once again. We've looked at it for the past two weeks. We've been dealing with this principle now, I know, for probably at least three weeks, and I want to deal with it one last time before we move on. And I spend so much time on this idea or notion that it is in verse 18, and I think it's also in 16 as well, because I think it's groundbreaking. And I I think it's groundbreaking in how we as Christians should deal with others, deal with each other, and share the gospel. I think it's groundbreaking in evangelism as as well. So Paul is describing himself, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and by deed. So we see here Paul speaking to his role as a preacher and what he was doing. And as we saw last week, he didn't want to brag or be boastful about what he was doing. Instead, he was making much of Jesus and what he had done. So why was he making much of Jesus in this passage? What was the underpinning or basis and foundation for Paul's boasting? It was because of what Christ had accomplished through his ministry, was it not? And what exactly had Christ accomplished through his ministry? It was the obedience of the Gentiles. And it is this obedience that I want us to look at yet again. And we saw it, I think, back up in verse 16, where he said, I want to make an offering to God of a sanctified people, an obedient people. And as I've said, and I'll say it again, the church has gotten away from this notion of obedience. It's not really cool right? Parents have gotten away from a notion of obedient children. We kind of want to coddle them and let them rule the world. And the church has sucked into that notion to where we coddle each other and we don't want anybody to feel bad about what they're doing because after all that just leads to hurt feelings. I said it in Bible study a few weeks ago, and I'll say it here again this morning. Shame is a wonderful thing. We have a world and a society and unfortunately a church that wants to take shame away. We want there to be no shame, that we shouldn't feel shameful of anything that we do, say, or however our actions or whatever our actions lead us to do. But you see, shame is God's gift of telling us, you're wrong. What you're doing is not right. You need to turn from that, dispel of that shame, and embrace and repent. That's where shame leads us. But our society has done away with shame. So what we have is a large group of unrepentant, degenerate people. 
that embrace their own sin because there is no more shame. But shame is a gift from God. So this idea of obedience is so critically important when it comes to the church. You all know my stance on salvation. We're saved by faith alone. Sola fide was the resounding drumbeat of the reformers. And I stand on that. I do not waver from that. It is still my battle cry that I am saved because of what I believe, not what I do. So hopefully you can see the apparent, the apparent rub between obedience and salvation and faith and salvation. I think there's a danger without a proper understanding of what sola fide or faith alone really means. Because the danger is I can say that I have faith and live like the devil and it's not going to matter and who are we to argue, right? If I'm not saved by my actions, then as Paul looked and we looked at in in the fifth chapter of Romans, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer was, may it never be. God forbid. That was also a concern of the Apostle James, the very brother of Christ. The next one, Bruce. I was worried that you couldn't go either direction and we were going to be stymied. What is it? What use is it? I think there are six of these slides, Bruce. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? That's what we're talking about, right? If I say I have salvation but my life is a hellion, what does that mean? If a brother or sister is without food, clothing, or in need of daily food, and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is it? If you've got someone freezing to death on the sidewalk, and instead of giving them clothing and blankets, you go up to them and say, go in peace, be warmed. Right? It's what James is saying. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. That's sort of a a, a faith, I, I don't want to use the word faith alone statement, but you can see how it's taken that way. These people say, I believe! And live like I don't believe. Well, very good. The demons believe in God. And where are they headed? So that is the last one. All right, Bruce. So you see, we have faith alone. And then we have James's retort on those that saying, I have faith and that's all that matters. You can't question what I do or don't do. That's not saving faith. True saving faith carries with it a righteous life. It's that simple. True saving faith carries with it a righteous life. 
It is a faith, or you're saved by faith alone, but it is a faith that is not alone. That was the response of the reformers. You are saved by faith alone, but that faith carries something with it. And what it carries with it are righteous actions. You cannot be saved and live the same life you lived before you were saved. It cannot happen. We talk about the gospel and how dangerous it is, or how simple it is, but yet there are certain little caveats that carries with them dangers. And I think that's one of the biggest dangers there is, is to say, I believe that's good. Because there's so many preachers that tell me it's faith alone. All I have to do is believe. That's true. But if nothing follows that belief, that belief is ill-founded. The belief is not true faith. And then there are those who say they believe and put on a fake lifestyle to make it look like they fit the bill. Well, they just don't fall into the group. Their lifestyle really isn't a righteous lifestyle. Their heart hasn't been changed. They're hypocrites from within. They want everybody else to see that they are saved when in fact they are not. There was truly no change at all. Genuine, honest, good works necessarily flow from a faith-filled heart. Now, what's the point of all this? Where am I going? The point is that we have to make sure that we, each other, and we as we present the gospel, that they know the full gospel. That Christ comes, he changes hearts, and it is a result of that changed heart that actions change. That's the flow. And if you don't have that flow, you don't have Christians. Actions or lifestyles are extremely difficult to change. They are. I have been frustrated on so many levels. We come up with all different type of psychological buzzwords. Cognitive-based approaches. Evidence-based approaches. I'll hold back. I have seen none of those work. Proverbs. Does a leopard change his spots? Can an Ethiopian change his skin color? No. If your attempt to change what you do and who you are is based on something outside of God, you will fail, I promise you. And I see failures every day that come before me. Mankind cannot change outside God's intervention. That's why when Christ comes, you accept Him truly, the Holy Spirit dwells within you, then that change flows from that. It's critically important that we share this basis that behavior is a reflection on what's inside. That if our behaviors have not changed, there is no Holy Spirit residing within us. All right, next one, Bruce. Back to verse 19. In the power of signs and wonders, 
in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So as Paul preached the gospel and shared with them how their lives would reflect Jesus, he did so by using powers or power of signs and wonders. Signs and wonders played a big role in Paul's ministry. They played a big role throughout the book of Acts when we went through it. We saw that. We saw healings. We saw people being raised from the dead. We saw a lot of signs and wonders occurring during that time and specifically during Paul's ministry. And he says that these signs and wonders were accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave the power to perform signs, wonders, miracles to the apostles. The apostolic authority, and I was going to quote it and I didn't, I didn't quote it, but you see that he sent out the twelve, he sent them out and gave them power to do these things. Why? Why were they necessary? Why did Paul use them? They were necessary to confirm what the apostles were teaching. I mean, if Paul was telling someone that you are saved or your sins are forgiven and that he was speaking on behalf of God and nothing went along with it, they would just write him off because there were a lot of itinerant preachers and people that claimed a lot of different things. But when a leper was healed instantaneously, people would be like, oh, this guy means what he says. There's some power in what he's saying. It confirms the message. It confirmed the message of Paul at that time and the apostles at that time. They could be bitten by vipers and not be harmed. Now, I'm a firm believer that those signs, wonders, and powers were for that age, for that reason. And why do I believe that? I believe that because you all have the ability to confirm what I'm saying in a different way than me getting up here and handling snakes. Right? And how is that? God's Word. If what I'm telling you is not true, you've got a very easy and available resource in front or behind you that you can look and you can confirm if what I'm saying does or does not match what God says. I don't have to heal a leper or handle snakes or raise the dead to say that what I'm saying is from God or not. You can confirm that on your own. So the confirming or the ability to confirm is much different today than it was in the time of Acts and the time of Paul and his apostles whenever they were doing so much. So he used the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he preached and he spread the gospel from Jerusalem roundabout as far as Illyricum. 1,400 miles, roughly, that he traveled to spread the gospel. From Jerusalem up to what is now Bosnia-Herzegovina. Find it on a map. It's a long way. He didn't jump in his car. He didn't hop a plane. 
He was either in boat or by, on foot. It wasn't an easy task. He traveled in all different types of terrains, all different types of weather. The conditions were very difficult. He was beaten, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked. You name it, Paul endured it. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. Next slide, Bruce. But as written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Can you jump back to 20? Ah, we got to go back. So he aspired. It was his desire to preach the gospel. Now, we see Paul changing sort of from a preacher, pastor, to a missionary. And to an extraordinary missionary at that. And there is something implicit and beautiful in these passages. Paul wrote that he did not aspire to preach the gospel where Christ was already named. What's he talking about? What's he dealing with here? We have the true meaning of missionary work here. The absolute, when you peel off all the layers of the onion, this is what it means to be a missionary. This is true missionary work. True missionary work takes place where there ain't no Jesus. Where his name has not been proclaimed. And that's what Paul's talking about. Keep in mind here that the, the true missionary work that I'm talking about is different from local outreach. We have local outreach and we have true missionary work. And you say, well, Paul, what about all those people in Ephesus? Right? You started the church in Ephesus. You char- started a church in Philippi. You've got all these churches... And you're going to see in the following weeks, he's wanting to go to Spain. Did he not have any work to do in Ephesus? Did he not have any work to do in Philippi? There were 10,000s and 10,000s of people that didn't know Jesus, that weren't saved in Ephesus and Philippi and all those other churches. But Paul said, I'm done. I'm done. I'm going to go to Spain Because I'm going to go to places where Christ has not been named. That's true missionary work. There was plenty of work to do in Ephesus and Philippi and all those other churches. But he had taught them that it was their responsibility to start local missions to take care of those tens of thousands of people that did not know Jesus who were in Ephesus, who were in Philippi, who were in Jerusalem for that man. It was their job. It was their responsibility. It wasn't the missionary's job. The missionary's job was to go to places where Christ had not been named, where there were, were no churches. That was his desire. This is Paul's idea of missionary work. You'll find this is Piper's idea of missionary work. This is 
This is David Platt's idea of missionary work. They focus on places where Jesus' name is not mentioned, where there are no churches. There are three groups when it comes to missions. There are goers, there are senders, and there are those who are disobedient. Those three. Goers, senders, and those that are disobedient because they don't do either. What's the Great Commission? Yeah. Go forth, right? Baptizing, teaching, making disciples. All nations, all peoples. Is that just to Paul? It's to all of us. It wasn't just the apostles. It was to every believer. That is a job that God has given us. You know, when we think of, of missionary work and missions, we think of the goers. We think of Paul. We think of those who go to these places. However, the, any goer will quickly tell you that they cannot go without cinders. There have to be cinders. Paul was a goer, but he had a cinder, multiple cinders backing him. They provide financial support to the goer. They pray for the goers without ceasing. They provide spiritual support to the goers. They're there for whatever the needs may be. Give me the next one, Bruce. Next one. Hopefully you can make out most of that. Green. Established churches. Yellow. Formal nominative churches. Red. Nothing. Any place you see red is a Jesus Christ wasteland. Desert. Doesn't exist. So you see all this green. Does this green mean that everybody in those greens saved? No. It means there's churches that are established like Philippi, like Corinth, that are responsible for doing the local outreach and bringing others in the local area to Jesus. The red says there's nothing there. Nothing there. The gospel has not been, not been proclaimed. I don't know if it's got a date on it. August of 21, the Joshua Project. August of 21. So you see a great deal of North Africa. You see a whole lot of India. China's in there. Some of the stands are in there. As godless as we know that Russia is, it's not even in that. The goal of the Joshua Project is to send missionaries to these areas. How do you think those missionaries are going to be received in these areas? Iran, Iraq, 
Now. Now. Very hostile. Can very possibly be killed. Paul had the same problem. How many times did we read here where he worried and weighed whether he was going to be put to death on a missionary journey? He doesn't. The only time he worries about being put to death is that he wants it more because it is to gain to be with Christ. It's the only time you hear him talking about it. That is to be the focus of missionaries throughout this land. I know the Joshua Project works at sending those people in that area. So what does this mean for a church like us that's in the middle of the United States? And we're all green, right? It means that we're responsible for the local people. It means that God has turned that over to us. He has given us that job. We have been delegated to reach everybody else that we can come in contact with. That's rather daunting, is it not? Kind of makes me realize how much I failed, how much we fail in the process. Throughout the years... We tend to get comfortable in our bubble. And the older I get, the more comfortable in my bubble I become. To where we just kind of want to focus on each other and leave everybody out there, out there. God's sovereign, He can deal with that in His sovereign way. Right? It's not how He does it. It's not how he does it at all. We know that. We know that he works in and through us to accomplish and bring those who do not know him to himself. If our goal in life's calling is to make much of Jesus, then does it not follow that we make much of Jesus to unbelievers, that we make much of Jesus to the people that are in that red? And just let me tell you, there's a large population in that red. Billions of people are in that red. Billions. The Church of Jesus Christ has seen a great many of wonderful missionaries throughout its history. Remarkable missionaries. Perhaps none none greater than Adniram Judson. Anybody heard of Adniram Judson? No? Adniram Judson spent 37 years on the mission field in Burma. Sacrificed everything in his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And through the first six years of his ministry, he had six, count them, six converts. It was difficult. He translated the Bible to Burmese and compiled an English Burmese dictionary. Today, there are 2.5 billion Burmese Christians that flowed from the work that Christ did through Adoniram Judson. I want to read to you an excerpt, and I'll put it up here, from a letter that Judson sent his would-be father-in-law regarding a woman that he found himself had, he had fallen in love with. Verse, 
I have now to ask whether you could consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you could consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved, through her means from eternal woe and despair? What a letter, right? Those of you that are dads of daughters, how would you respond when you got one from your future son-in-law? Saying, I'm going to come, and can you deal with the fact that next spring when I come and marry your daughter, you'll never see her again. That she's going to go through all kinds of torture, pain, suffering. Wow, what a contrast to today's society and world. We do the opposite. We go and tell the father-in-law, I'm not sure I did this build. I do remember coming to ask you how we're going to be there to support and provide a good living and a home and a wonderful place and all these things. No, it's not what Judson did. He said, it's going to be painful. It's going to be sorrowful. They lost, I forget how many children that they lost. All sorts of diseases and illnesses. Why? Why? In the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from the heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. That's great faith, folks, on both parts, on Judson's part and her father's part. So what does this mean? What does this mean? I think it means that we need to spend a little bit more time looking at missions. Maybe there are some that want to go. In case, or if that is the case, then those of us that stay need to pledge to be faithful senders. We need to think about what we can do with respect to that area red because we know that God wants to make that green. We also need to look at what we do locally because there is a lot to be done locally. I know Tammy and I know Kelly do a lot locally in the local missions, the local outreach 
That's our job. That's our duty. That's what we are called to do as a church. Missionaries shouldn't come to the United States for that matter. Because it's all green. How many hundreds of thousands of churches are from the Atlantic to the Pacific? And yet so many people are unreached and it falls at the foot of the church because we haven't done what Christ has called us to do. That is our job. That is our task that God has given us. So as we move forward, hopefully we can look at this issue with a sense of vigor, a sense of desire. I must say that I have fallen way short of doing this. But if we truly are to make much of Jesus, then the best way we can go about making much of Jesus is to make sure his name is glorified all over the world, everywhere. Amen? All right. Let's all stand and join together. Closing hymn.